The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Well, my name is Patty, and I am a community member here at Common Ground, and I'm thrilled, and we're all thrilled, to have Kevin Griffin here uh, with us. Thanks for turning out and giving such a gracious welcome to him. Um, I've had the honor of getting to do a week-long retreat with him at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on the Dharma of Recovery with him and Heather Sundberg and John Travis. I've also got to go to the Buddhist Recovery Network's first annual conference at the beginning of October, of which you're a founding member. Something like that. Is there a better a title? No, that's good. I'll take that. I thought to introduce him, I would read some of his words from my dog-eared copy of wow. One Breath at a Time, and then I'll turn it over to him. But I wouldn't be at Common Ground, probably, if it weren't for getting this book and reading his teachings. As a person in recovery, I was looking for something to open my heart, and he has a really clear way and funny way of doing that. Um, this higher power of the Dharma guides us, protects us, and inspires us. Turning our will and our lives over to this power means living in accordance with what is true. It means acting out of compassion and kindness, pursuing our noblest goals, seeking truth in all things. It means striving for perfection of heart and mind while bowing to the truth of who we are with all our imperfections and failings. To me, that really speaks to what Kevin has to offer. This book is One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, but his teachings are for everyone to open the heart. And he does that through pointing out his vulnerabilities and his, you know, offering up his imperfections in a way that makes it possible for me to believe I could have what he has, which is a way to open the heart that I never thought was possible. But these teachings are for everyone. His new book is Dharma God, Burning Desire. Um, <laughs> a burning desire, Dharma God, and the path of recovery. So we're just so happy to have him here, and uh, now I'll turn it over to him. Thank you, Patty. Thank you so much. That was really sweet. Um, I wish I would have recorded it. <laughs> It's really wonderful to be here and in this, this new space. Um, last time I was here, uh, this was just like a wide open room and people were banging nails and putting it together. So uh, I'm really glad I didn't have to do any of that. I get to just come and reap the benefits of this great community here. And Gwyn, it's nice to see you as a founding member <laughs> uh, in more ways than one, I presume. Boy, that could get really troubling. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and I'm just really grateful to this community and to Mark Nunberg, who's the founding teacher here, who's a dear friend and, and wonderful teacher. Um, and just all the effort that goes into this and, and uh, to running a center like this, an Adana-based center especially, I have the greatest respect for that. My talk tonight is entitled, The Power of Karma. 
uh, I don't usually have talks that have titles. Usually I make them up as I go along, and then later on I decide what the title of that talk was. Uh, but uh, Mark asked me in his organized manner to give a title, you know, a couple months ago, to tell him what I was going to talk about tonight, which is kind of like trying to predict what mood I was going to be in in two months. Um, but uh, indeed, it is uh, a topic that's that's um, really central to how I practice and how I think of the Dharma. Um, and it's it's the first power that I talk about in this new book, which actually is not for sale yet, uh, and will be in a few short weeks. Um, but the power of karma, really, and what I'm talking about is the higher power of karma, for those who are familiar with the 12-step language. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's clear that uh, this area, the Twin Cities, uh, whatever you call yourselves, I don't know, in, you know, when you live in an area, you sort of have a name for it, and then outsiders call it by the wrong thing and then you know that they're outsiders. So, um, but clearly there's this, this is really a, a center for this, this burgeoning movement of Buddhism and recovery or Buddhism in the 12 steps. Uh, all the groups that are here and the wonderful teachers, I just spent some time this afternoon with Judith McGeer, who is somebody I admire tremendously and uh, love dearly. Uh, she's a real gem and a really precious uh, uh, resource for you guys here. Um, where was I? Uh, the power of uh, karma. Um, so to talk about karma, I think the first thing we have to do is uh, get into the definition of the word itself. Uh, because when that word start, sort of came into our vocabulary in the West, uh, it's kind of in the 60s, and it came uh, to us as meaning fate. It's my karma, man. You know, like what? I can't help it. It's just my karma. You know, that's why I'm in jail. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I didn't do anything. You know, and um, you know that's a miss interpretation of the word. The, the literal translation of the word karma, as I understand it, is action. So when we talk about karma, usually what we're talking about is the result of actions. So the formal word for that is karmic resultants. But we will not uh, use that term tonight too much anyway. Um, but, the, but the law of karma is the law that says actions bring results. Very simple, very obvious thing. There are some who deny that. Uh, that's their problem. Um, and, and really, even in the Buddhist times, there were people who denied that there was something called law of cause and effect. Uh, there was a belief, as there is among some people today, that everything was predestined. Everything was preordained. And the Buddha uh, talked to those people, and we see his dialogue with them in the suttas, and uh, basically he says, you're wrong. 
you're confused and that's wrong view and you're really going to mess up if you believe that because you have to take responsibility for your actions. And if you think that you don't have responsibility for them, that everything's just happening randomly or by some you know, predestination, then you are going to be just swept along in the tides of reactivity. Because really what you're, ta- what you're saying is that uh, you have no control over yourself. Sounds kind of like a lot of alcoholics I've met and been. Um, so that's the starting point, is to understand that actions, there are results for actions. And uh, there are, we can say that there are three kinds of actions. Uh, there are thoughts, words, and deeds. So those are the three kinds of karma that I'd like to talk about tonight, and, and the three ways that karma is very powerful. So um, if you've spent any time trying to meditate, you know something about the power of thoughts if you've been watching. But let's just take a moment. Let's just close your eyes for a moment. Don't get, you know, you don't have to change your posture. Just close your eyes for a moment and think about this. You're lying on the beach in Jamaica. It's warm and sunny. You've got plenty of sunblock on, so you're safe. (laughs) Your eyes are closed. You're listening to the sound of the waves hitting the beach. Some children off in the distance laughing. You've been waiting for this for ages. Here you are in your favorite place, just doing nothing, totally relaxed. Ah. So how does that thought make you feel? Just notice the power of that thought, of that image. Ah. And then, because you're a modern person and you must always be in touch, your cell phone rings beside you on the beach in Jamaica. You look at the caller ID and it is your boss. And you know what he's calling about. It was that last project before you left that you just didn't have time to finish really properly. You've been waiting three years since your last vacation. Couldn't he give you a break? I mean, why are you even working for this guy anymore? You should have quit ages ago. He's such a pain. I'm not even going to answer the phone because I'm quitting. It's over. This job is just a piece of crap. I'm done. How do you feel now? Have you ever 
had a thought like that when you were meditating or not when you were meditating? Thoughts are very powerful. You know, nothing happened. You were just lying there. You were just sitting here, actually, (laughs) thinking about lying there. Thoughts condition our emotional states. This is the whole sort of idea behind cognitive therapy and now mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Starting to really look at the connection, how how our thoughts create our moods and our moods create more thoughts and we go into these swirls. Further, our thoughts in very... Uh, essential ways can can really create our reality. Really create our reality. That is redundance. But uh, fortunately, I don't have to edit this. I've been editing lately, and it's painful. Uh, trying to get it right, anything right. Um, what we believe has a direct influence on how we act. I tell a story in my new book about learning to play the guitar when I was 12 years old. And simply learning chords and starting to play and sing songs. It was very easy. You know, I just had to do what I had to do. You know, I had to show up and put my hands on the neck and put in a certain amount of time. And I didn't question that I could do that. But at a certain point, I got into a band and there was a lead guitar player. And I watched him and I said, I can't do that. And so I never... tried at that point. So I assumed that all it took in order to play the guitar, to play rhythm guitar, play chords, was to practice. But to play lead guitar, there was some other magic, and I didn't have it. And this was my belief. And so for many years, I didn't learn to play lead guitar. Eventually, I did, just sort of through osmosis, and sort of gradually, I sort of didn't realize I was learning it, sort of by accident. Um, but I could have learned the guitar, many years, lead guitar, many years before, but I believed I couldn't. And if you believe you can't do something, then you don't do it. If you believe you can't get sober, you don't try to get sober, you just keep drinking. So uh, there's this sort of, you know, the secret, this whole, you know, baloney thing out there uh, that, you know, your thoughts actually sort of directly affect the material world. You know, if I think if I think about money, I'll get money. And and that's that's a misunderstanding of karma. But but it's coming out of this seed, which is the first phrase of the Dhammapada, that the, the mind precedes everything. And it's this way that it does it. Because if we believe something, what the way we see the world, that's what has a great effect on how we act. So this is the power of karma. Thoughts, the action of thought, then, has this power to affect our emotional states, to help us determine our actions, which then result in really the big movements in our lives. So the power of thought. And... 
afterthought, the, the next more uh, materialized version of, of karma is the power of speech, of words. You know, we, we've all had experiences of expressing ourselves in different ways, expressing ourselves violently and seeing what the effect of that is, the power of that, the, uh, of expressing ourselves wisely, compassionately, kindly, and seeing what the effect of that is. Tremendous, tremendous difference, tremendous power that, that has. The power of speech you know, changes uh, history. You know, the power of, of our current president's speech last year was really what got him elected, wasn't it? It was his, his words, his way of expressing himself. So powerful. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, Hitler. <laughs> These people, the way they used language, changed the world. Tremendously powerful. And this is karma. This creates karma. Each time we speak, we create karma. So uh, now when I'm saying karma, I'm talking about we, we create results. Things happen from that. In some way, this seems um, really obvious, what I'm saying. But, and, and I hope that it is. I mean, I, I think that uh, these are simple ideas. The, the reason that we talk about them is because even though we know this, we don't act on it, right? Even though we know that obsessing about something is just going to keep us more and more anxious and worried, we don't stop. And so if we, uh, you know, the idea of talking about this is to bring into our consciousness the importance of stepping in of bringing intentional action, thoughts, words, and deeds into our lives rather than being swept along. What's happening right now is the result of past thoughts, words, and deeds for each of us, as well as other things that we don't control, that are outside our control. But us being here together, each of us made certain decisions to do that. So, this intention to, um, to grow or to learn or to share is what informs the quality of of what happens here. The Buddha said uh, that what determines the outcome of an action isn't so much the action itself. What comes before that is the intention behind it. So we can do, uh, we can give some money to a homeless person offhandedly or even hostily and that you could say, well, that was an act of generosity, but was it? Or we can give money in a caring way. And that's a totally different action, and it has totally different results. And the results are right there and then. The results are, I feel what I feel, which is I either feel generous or I feel hostile. 
And, and that's a decision. You know, I'm, if I'm aware, I can make that decision. If And the person who's receiving it receives either that one or the other form of energy. So this intention behind our actions is what really brings about the result. That was kind of a you know, sideline there, but uh, it's, it's central to this too. Um, so let me talk about action then. So thoughts, words, actions. This is where it's quite obvious that, that uh, what we do affects what happens in our lives. But again, we're often driven by impulse, habit, conditioning to act in unconscious ways or semi-conscious ways that don't bring about the results that we actually want in our lives. So the key to bringing about the, the at least the uh, type of results, maybe not the specific results, but the type of results we want, is to bring awareness to our thoughts, words, and actions, and particularly to awareness to the impulse or the intention behind all of those, so that then we are making choices based on wisdom and not on impulse. So when we sit down to practice meditation, we start to examine all this. We start to see all this. This is part of what we're doing. We're learning the landscape of our own minds and our own hearts. We're seeing our habitual patterns, the things that just keep showing up, boom, boom, the same story passing through over and over. If we're paying attention, we can catch that and notice, oh, that's a familiar story. You know, what karma is that creating for me? And where, you know, we, of course, part of what we're naturally going to ask is where did that come from? Not so important. Where is it going to go? What am I going to do with it? It's tricky to figure this stuff out. Our minds are very, you know, tricky. You know, this is, uh, you know, the big book talks about alcohol being cunning, baffling, and powerful. You know, my ego is cunning, baffling, and powerful. You know, and it might be telling me that this is just the way to go, and I'm, you know, this is all terrific. And then all of a sudden, I hit the wall and realize, oh, I was just caught up in an old story, in a delusion. So there. We can talk about, you know, the, the Dharma talks are often very inspiring because you kind of feel like you got something. Okay, now I got it. Now I understand it. But the truth is that Dharma talks, especially when they're trying to offer some guidance, are m models. They're ideals. And the reality is that our minds are a lot messier than that. And our lives are a lot more complicated. And all the, you know, we can talk kind of, we talk about karma as like, oh, there's A, B, and C, and D, and it's like that. But it's not like that. It's A, B, and C, and And that was the alphabet, you know, all mixed up, you know. It's, everything's coming in so many directions. So this, this process, this unraveling, you know, Judith calls it interrupting the karmic flow, or interrupting our karmic energies. This process. 
which in some ways is better delineated in the 12 steps than it is in Buddhist practice, um, is a time-consuming process. <laughs> There's a reason why, you know, when people get like 10 years of sobriety, they get some respect, but they also are often in crisis. You ever notice that? Five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. I mean, it's it doesn't get solved in the six months, you know. It's And people who've been meditating for 10 years, 20 years, they still have personalities. <laughs> Stuff still goes wrong in their lives, you know. You know, the Buddha wasn't really, he wasn't saying we should unravel all this. In fact, one of the things he said is if you try to unravel all your karma, you will go crazy. It wasn't quite the word he used, but basically. So fortunately, we don't have to solve all this. We don't have to unravel all our karma. In fact, the only thing we need to do and the only thing we can do is act in this moment. The only way we can change our karma is in this this moment. So we're faced with what have I got to work with? Not okay, how am I going to turn myself into the ideal person? It's enlightened and really sexy too, you know. <laughs> So, on the one hand, there's this mess. Call it I. And then there's... So that's like, that's just so complicated. I can't solve I. But all I actually have to deal with is this right now. What am I going to do right now? Okay. And what I would suggest to everybody right now is that you just listen to me. And I'm not saying that out of an egotistical place. But that right now the most useful way of using this moment is to try to get something out of this person that you're staring at who's talking to you. Because otherwise, you're just going to be creating more of your pre-existing karma, which you already know where that goes. You know? So if you want more of that, you know, keep, keep thinking while you're listening to me. But if you'd like to try to get something else, try not to listen. That was a good one. Try not to listen to yourself. Listen to myself. So to get back to this idea of the power of karma, I want to talk a little bit about why I can call this, why I call this a higher power or even an aspect of God. There are Buddhists. uh, I was already told that the Buddha would roll over in his grave if he heard what I was teaching now. Uh, That was from another Dharma teacher who's a friend. I can't wait to hear what my enemies say. 
First of all, I want to talk, actually, I'll talk a little bit about the word God. That's kind of a dirty word. I kind of feel like I'm saying shit, you know, when I say God. Like, oh, you're not supposed to say that in a Dharma hall, you know. Um, the causes and conditions that bring us to think of God in the way that we do uh, were come out of a particular religious tradition. And according to people that I trust, like Karen Armstrong, our modern idea of God is one of the most flawed ones in history and really doesn't bear a lot of relationship to what uh, the early meaning of God was in the monotheistic traditions. Um, so I, I recommend to you uh, her book, uh, The Case for God. Um, it really opens up the meaning uh, in a lot of ways. So this whole idea of a personal, some being, I mean, she says this on the first page of this book. She says, the idea that God is a supreme being is just wrong. It's just not, it's, that was never really in there in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam. That, that, that's very, that's just off. Um, so if we, if we can just drop that idea of God as a being, it opens up the possibilities of what might this mean. And I kind of reverse engineer God from the steps, you know. The steps say, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. So my question then is, well, what, if I was going to turn my will and my life over to something that was going to transform my life, or that was going to, you know, take care of me, because the steps says would take care of me, what would that be? And the first thing that becomes evident to me is that that would be the law of karma. My actions are the things that change my life. My thoughts, words, and deeds are the things that change my life. When I am an addict or in my addictive personality, when I am in that self-centered, reactive, acting out of impulse, unconscious person, I am creating destructive karma. And I am out of harmony with the law of karma. The law of karma, you know, wants me to live in a wise and skillful way. This is what the Buddha laid out. His teachings are a teaching on karma. This is the fundamental thing that the Buddha taught, was how to transform yourself through your thoughts, words, and actions. And the Eightfold Path is a path for transforming yourself through your thoughts, words, and actions. So if I turn my will and my life over to the law of karma, that means that I'm going to try to live, for me, what it means is I'm going to try to live by the Eightfold Path. It could be any spiritual model or tradition, you know, some some embodiment of truth. There are many. You know, Buddhism doesn't have the 
uh, corner on that mark, and it's just got the corner on really clear, sensible, you know, <laughs> easy to follow instructions and uh, powerful practices. And, all right, I'm a little biased. So it's clear, at least to me, <laughs> that uh, this is a power greater than me. Because if I, I can't just do whatever the hell I want to and get what I want, you know, I can't just go out and drink and use and, you know, pr follow every craving and think that I'm going to be happy, joyous, and free, or peaceful, or loved. <laughs> Or have any friends, you know, or have a job, you know. I mean, I, you know, I can't act if I'm acting out of my own impulse all the time like that. Forget it. So I have to live in harmony with something else. I have to turn my will and my life over to something else, which is, for me, is the Dharma, this path. But more fundamentally, it's living in harmony with the law of karma. Tomorrow, at uh, this day long, I'll talk more about different aspects of the Dharma and this path and how, how I see each of them as powers. But I think this is the starting point in many ways. And, and we could say that they all flow out of this, out of this idea that uh, through intentional thoughts, words, and actions, I transform. I create my life. And it's through intentional thoughts, words, and actions that I become an addict by grasping, using, repeating, you know, drink, look down, pick up, drink, repeat, action over and over. By repeating those actions, I become an addict. And it's by repeatedly not using that I be stop being an addict. So both of these are karmically created. Addiction is karmically created. Recovery is karmically created. So um, that's enough on that. And um, we have some time if there are thoughts, objections, questions, comments, sharings, whatever. Well, thank you. What do I mean by you don't have to know where it comes from? Uh, you just have to deal with what's happening now. Um, well, it kind of goes against the whole, uh, you know, psychoanalytical approach to uh, personal growth or change, uh, and and it's a. It's not to say that it isn't useful to reflect and get some idea of, of uh, you know, some of the causes. But we can get caught up in that. 
no matter, you know, when you figure out what your mother did to you that made you how you are, you still are the way you are. And you probably don't feel much better. In fact, now you might be angrier. So at that point, you have some information. And in this moment, what are you doing with it? And so um, hopefully what you can do with it is have some compassion for yourself, some forgiveness for your mother, and some wisdom about how your mind works so that you won't get caught as much in that story. Um, but the story is happening now. The emotion is happening now. And the engagement with it in this moment is the only place in which you can do anything about it. So um, you know, e- you know, your memory of your mother is happening now. So it's all, uh, this is the moment when change has to happen. We can't plan to be different. You know, it doesn't help. I mean, I'm going to start meditating every day, starting tomorrow. Yeah. How far does that get you? Yeah. some being out there that's just like took your will out of you and is running you around. It's really a delusive way of looking at the world. And it doesn't make any sense when we actually look at it. I mean, it's, it's okay. You know, you can, you can get by on that idea for a while. But this is what happens to a lot of people in recovery. That you know, they just like, okay, fine, I'll just do this step. And like, God's going to take care of me, and great, you know, and you don't worry about it. And then at some point, the fog clears, they start like thinking, it's like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. How does this work? Wait, where is God? What's happening? You know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the crisis of faith or the crisis of addiction, you know, happens. Like, well, I, I mean, I've just seen that in too many people. And, and so uh, it's important to me that, it, that God makes sense in some way. I mean, I accept that, uh, you know, that I don't know how karma got created or if it's created or how, you know, the universe, all that stuff. I mean, the Buddha was like, said, forget about first causes. You know, that's not what's important. But the idea that I mean, this is a typical 12-step delusion to me, which is God got me sober. God keeps me sober, you know. And 
So that's saying that karma doesn't exist, that cause and effect doesn't exist, that, that some external force just stepped in and made me the way I am. And, and that's a very risky position to be in, for one thing. But it also just seems like, like it's, it's a way of saying, oh, before I was sober, I was bad. You know, I, and then somehow I got sober, and now I'm good. You know, I mean, that, that, isn't that kind of one of the images or one of the kind of attitudes that kind of shows up in the program? Like, oh, you know, drinking, I was bad. But that's not true. I mean, if you go back and you look at how you got sober, I mean, I'm talking about sober, whatever your program you're in, whatever you're dealing with, drugs, alcohol, food, gambling. You know, when, when you went through that transition, there was some intention and effort on your part to change. It often doesn't seem like there was enough. That's what's sort of amazing. That wow, I got it. But you know, I don't think anybody can look back and say I didn't want to get sober. I was trying not to get sober. I was determined never to drink, never to stop drinking. You know, that's not the way it is. People want to change, but they're struggling against this addiction, and there's this battle going on. And at a certain point, the positive part, the karmic energy of the positive intention gets enough extra leverage to break you through. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that takes a few times or whatever, but if you make it and you stay, you know, at a certain point, that accumulation of positive karma is is strong enough to overcome the negative karma. I mean, there's always this battle going on inside us, right? There's always the, the negative and the positive. So uh, there's so then just doing this process, then you know I just can't accept that that there that okay if if when I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, you know there's actually some being that's stepping in and taking care of me. Why are there any more steps? That should be the end of the process right there. Okay, God's in control. I'm done. You know, I'm saved, I'm enlightened, I'm whatever, right? I mean, this is the problem with that. That's why, the, that's why the steps are not saying that. What happens right then, when you turn your will and your life over to the care of God, is you realize what a mess you've made of your life. Because now, you're focused on living wisely and skillfully and in harmony with something, and you go, oops, wow. I didn't realize how bad it was until I actually tried to be good, <laughs> And then, if I'm going to move forward, I can't move forward until I've resolved some of that history. And then I write the inventory. And then I start to try to let go of those character defects and that whole process, that whole, the whole middle of the steps. Um, I'm obviously kind of vehement about this issue. But, uh, so thank you for asking. I hope that made sense. I, you know, I, I just say words, and then I hope that they connect into sentences and paragraphs. So, yeah. In some of the Buddhist traditions, um, faith, conviction, and devotion plays a big role. Yeah. And um, I mean, the question of God, I think, ultimately boils down to a question of faith. From a, the type of emotional response that actually may be healing. You, you know, you could, you could have a symbol and have faith for it. Yeah. Faith in it. And that faith itself might be healing. It's not a symbol that is healing, it's a faith. Right. It. And 
So maybe maybe the analogy between God and power of karma perhaps needs to take into account faith and I certainly I certainly see faith as a power, as a, as an aspect of the, the Dharma that's that's very powerful. But what I'm who I am trying to talk to is the those you know, we live in a culture that's uh, faith in our culture means you believe in something that has no proof. You know, that that's just like you, and you have to believe in this or you're going to go to hell, you know, and it's just, you know, that's faith, right? And, whereas Buddhism has another kind of faith. It's called, you know, it's the tested faith. It's the faith that comes out of experience. And while I've had an experience of, of calm happening, wow, you know, maybe I'll try going on a retreat because I've gotten a certain amount of faith from doing a certain amount of practice. You know, it's not, we're not expected to just have blind faith. Well, the Buddha was born out of his mother's side and, um, you know, he took 10 steps and the earth shook. And I mean, that's what it says in the suttas, right? And, and, but fortunately, nobody's saying you have to believe that in order to be a Buddhist, unlike some religions where they, you know, want you to believe something that's just not believable. So I'm, I'm not, I'm just not sort of talking to that aspect of Buddhism. I mean, I think there are diluted teachings in, in traditional Buddhism, too. I mean, I, and people that I respect and love, uh, you know, that I just can't buy. I mean, I just, I can't buy that, you know, Pure Land Buddhism, for instance. I mean, it could, could be true, but I'm a 20th, now 21st century, cynical, skeptical American. You know, and I'm, and I'm in this culture, and this is what I have to deal with. I'm, I, I can't sort of step out of that and have, uh, and, I mean, yeah, anyway, I'm, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to really talk to that, the materialist, because that's really where I'm coming from to a great extent. And, 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 and I want to say that, you know, what I'm saying is it's, it's limited, you know. Uh, I, I'm... I don't feel like, you know, I've tried to write a book about higher power and about God and Buddhism, but I'm not trying to, you know, make the absolute, you know, definition of that. Just work with certain key ideas. Thank you. I'm not, I haven't been looking over here. Yes? So what are you praying to and what are you trying to will? You know, I actually have prayers in my book. You know, this is this that just the question comes out of our deluded way of thinking about God. That we think that if we pray, we must be praying to something. That's just uh, I mean that's one type of prayer to pray to something. Uh, and I mean that's you know how I learned to pray too. I pray to God to do something. Um, All right, then what do you do? Well, let me see if I can, I'm hoping that I have something in here that makes sense. We'll see. You know, you write something, and then later on you come back and see if it makes sense. Um, okay, let's see if I see what I have for a prayer for karma. Okay, so. One of the things that I do is I kind of play with vows. 
So this says, I turn my will and my life over to the higher power of karma. I vow to live in harmony with the moral laws of the universe and to use the power of karma to support my spiritual and worldly growth. So who am I talking to? Who are you talking to? Do you pray? Well, then why are you asking? <laughs> do you want to pray? So the first thing I will say is that you pray to yourself. Is there anybody else around? Is there anybody else in your mind? <laughs> is anybody else listening? Maybe if you pray out loud, somebody else is listening. But you're praying to yourself. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, for me, what that means is that I'm praying. I'm, I am trying to awaken a part of myself. I'm trying to remind myself of something. Prayer is like reliable, trustworthy words that I bring into my mind so that I'll have those thoughts instead of the other ones. No, meditation is noticing whatever. I mean, there's definitions of meditation, but uh, mindfulness meditation is essentially noticing whatever is passing through and just acknowledging that and kind of letting go, trying not to get caught up in it and just coming back to the present moment. Prayer with words is saying, you know, when I say, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, what happens in that moment? Do you, do you know that prayer, the serenity prayer? So when I say that, what happens is I'm immediately confronted with the question, am I trying to change something that I should accept? And then, uh, you know, I'm thrown back on myself. And immediately... I go, oh, yeah, why am I trying to change that? Oh, I, well, I can't do anything about it. Oh, what a relief. And so I just talked to myself. But I used words that aren't my words, you know, that wasn't like my deluded thing. It's like reliable words that I bring in, and then I reflect on them, and then they do something to me. When I say, may I be happy, may you be happy, that's a prayer. Buddhists, you know, at least contemporary Buddhists might not like to think that metta is a prayer, but it's a prayer, it's among other things. Prayer was also used, is also a concentration device. Right? Traditionally, this is what the monks, and the Catholic monks were using prayer. They were, you know, Jesus Christ have mercy on me, Jesus Christ have mercy on me, over and over and over, right? Mantra, right? So prayer can also be mantra. But essentially, to me, it's... They're trying to awaken, set intention, remind myself of who I want to be, and saying words. You know, imagining yourself on a beach in Jamaica, it changes the way you feel, right? So it's the power of thought. It's using the power of thought to intentionally move your heart, you know, fill your mind with something positive. Now, is there a possibility that prayer can also change things outside yourself? If I said no, I would be claiming to know something that I don't know. You know, it, it's that's possible, isn't it? That it seems possible. Um, but what I can, can what I can know is my direct experience, which is when I say these words, there's an effect they have on me. I mean, I pray every morning for 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 um, healing. For I got a long list, you know. Uh, you know, of people that I pray for their healing. And 
I hope that that's helping them. But I know that it's helping me. So. Yes? I'm wondering if you could go back to um, what you said earlier about um, how nobody really got sober or clean or whatever by saying, I absolutely don't want to stop drinking. Um, sometimes I think that the Yeah. And all the other times it didn't work. Yeah. Um, so when you said uh, in response to that question, um, sometimes we don't, sometimes we're surprised at how little we tried. Yeah. We did try. Well, um, I think sometimes we need to have that, I mean, we kind of want to create some kind of God that takes care of the mystery of why did it work on the sudden to try? Yeah. Whatever. And, and it is mysterious. Uh, I mean, this is, karma is mysterious. I mean, you know, if we knew really how karma worked exactly, it would make things much simpler. But, you know, if you look at politics, politics is an argument about cause and effect. When people argue about a law, should we give people health care or should we not give people health care? It's which will bring the best results, you know. I mean, it's hard to believe that people actually argue about that question, but you know, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of delusion in the world. So, um, but but this is so so we're always thinking. You know, that's the thing. You know, if if you want to talk about mystery, the mystery is okay. I'm going to do this that I think is the wise thing to do, but what's the result going to be? I don't know. And and that's part also because when I act and I think speak or commit a deed uh, it's, it's in the context of the world which is full of other people's karma and the karma of the universe and the karma of the earth and the karma of this country and the karma of this city and you know uh, there's all these different energies and forces that I'm operating in which is why I'm not in control and why even when I do something that might seem like the skillful thing well uh, you know, if you get into the Buddhist view of the world, maybe it's some past lives action is coming to fruition in this life. And that's, you know, then it just becomes such a mess that you just forget it. Just do your best right now. You, know? just, uh, you can see why you would go crazy if you tried to figure that stuff out. I mean, I'm almost going crazy just talking about it. Yeah. Um, when you were speaking about only being able to do anything right now in the moment um, that's in a place you can make a change or uh, act to change karma. Um, in my experience, I am trying to decide what to do, how to change my karma. Uh, slowly, I can more and more rely on my instinct. Um, and that's how I do it, but I don't know. I was just curious as to what you use for guidance. Right. Good. Yeah. Good question. So let's get down to brass tacks. How does this really work? And this is 
I, you know, I, I just spent. Um, I'm. I'm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine Inquiring Mind, but I'm helping them edit an, an issue on addiction. So I'm like the guest editor, sort of. Although I'm, at times I'm an unwanted guest. Um, uh, but I invited Judith Regeer to write an article on her on this idea of interrupting the karmic flow. And so we actually spent this afternoon going over her article and trying to tune it up a little bit. And so uh, this is kind of fresh in my mind. And um, you know, there are different things we can say about that. But to bring it into the 12 steps, which is a good model for it, uh, the this. Uh, what Judith talks about is steps four through nine. Are you familiar with the 12 steps? So, so step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So what we're doing there is we're taking a look at the landscape, you know, the, the history that led up to this moment and trying to see what our patterns are. So we do the same thing in meditation, right? When we no watch our mind and you start to notice, oh, I tend to plan a lot. Or I get into a lot of judging. Oh, that's happened, right? So this is the first step, is the, the recognition of what's going on. And then we confess, step five. You know, we speak the truth. We don't just think it and write it down. We actually speak it and share it so it becomes more real. Um, and, and this is something that we don't really have in the Buddhist world. It's one of the reasons, one of the things I would say. Step five is the key. Step four and five really are the key things that are missing from. And I say this with Judith. Judith was saying this today, so I feel good that I'm not alone in saying it. It's like, okay, we're two people. Two people, you know. We agree. We must be right. Uh, it's the thing that's kind of missing from the Buddhist world. Is this really open admission? Of our failings, you know, there's a tradition in the monastic world of of kind of uh, confessing which precept you broke this month, but it doesn't seem to have quite the juice that a fourth step has, you know, or sharing in a meeting. So there's this. This is all about really seeing clearly what's going on. Step six and seven then is when we start to uh, it's really going back to step three in a way in that we're we look at this landscape and then we say, how is it, you know, what's not working here? What are my habitual ways of being that really don't work? And then you look at what, you know, what needs to be done. So that uh, one of the ways that I think this becomes clear is. Um, when we notice where we are suffering, you know, I mean, this makes it really clear. And when when are we willing to change? But when we are suffering. So if we're paying attention, and one of the wonderful things about meditation is that it brings our suffering into our face. You know, you're sitting there, no distractions. You know, you're having to face. You know, how many times? You know, have you sat down? Well, how many times have I sat down to meditate? And okay, I'm just going to sit. And boom. Ah, what I said to that person, you know, what I did to that person shows up, and just, you know, that I'm, I'm faced with what needs to change, what's causing my suffering, uh, or my obsession, my, you know, my anxiety, my sadness, some, you know, that shows up. I see that. Then this is the place that needs change, right? And 
uh, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. You know, uh, we then we you know we 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 start to take the action that will remove our shortcomings. That's how we ask. We don't ask. Please, God, remove your shortcomings. Pretty please, pretty please. Yeah, you'll be waiting a long time. We say, "Wow, where am I? How am I causing suffering?" And because I've looked at that process, I've seen how that gets created. I have an idea then what I need to do. I need to stop going that place. I need to stop going to that website. Or I need to stop um, working in this way. Or I need to stop um, getting, letting myself get so angry. Well, man, there's an anger workshop. You know, anger is. You know, I'm really, I'm really just um, anxious. Well. How, how do you work with anxiety? Well, gee, there's practices and there's therapy and there's, you know, we start to really see and we start to pick it apart and then we start to look for the tools. Um, the immense process, of course, is one of the transforming practices, too. Um, admitting our failings to ourselves and to others. And trying to make up for them. I feel like I still didn't give you enough mechanics, but it's the best I can do right now. So, so um, I think there's going to be tea and are there any cookies or anything? Because I didn't get any dinner, so I'm kind of hungry. Yeah. Okay. Um, so maybe we should close. Um, let's just uh, take a moment to um, share the merit. So in the Twelve-step tradition, it says that our spiritual awakening is really for the benefit of others. When we have a spiritual awakening, the first thing the steps say we did was we tried to help others. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's seen that If there is no self, who is there to become enlightened? Who is there to gain merit? That really, the value of our practice is the good that it can bring to others and to the world. So in that spirit, we offer our efforts our practice tonight and our shared inquiry tonight for the benefit of all beings. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May I receive the blessings of my life. May those I love receive the blessings of my life. May those I do not love receive the blessings of my life. May all those in this room receive the blessings of my life. May all beings receive the blessings of my life.
Thank you. Thank you.